Welcome to the Wine Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. My guests this week are two superb innovators. They are husband and wife, and their names are Sahil and Nidhi Verma. Together, they are the founders of The Cookaway, a UK-based recipe box business. Now, I have to admit, when I was first introduced to them, I had quite low expectations. I thought it might be yet another recipe box concept, probably a subscription model with some cheap deal to get you in, which, once you're in, it's hard to cancel. But the cookaway really isn't like that. Both Sahil and Nidhi are incredibly passionate about food. They really dive deep when they're researching recipes with a little bit of help from their famous chef friends. They've also invested heavily in technology and fulfillment, meaning that the user interface is actually superb. And what I really like about it, it's like one step on from your traditional delivery recipe box concept. It doesn't feel commoditized and they're really innovating in quite a new category. Now they're raising capital at the moment, which we discuss, but it's interesting because it's a business that's not all about growth. You know, the strategy is quality growth and they're very clear about that. Do check out their website at thecookaway.com. And damn it, I should have done a discount code for all the listeners of the Why Invest podcast. Uh, maybe something for our marketing team. Anyway, without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Sahil and Nidhi, welcome to the podcast. Let's start with your backgrounds. Where did you grow up? Where did you study? And how did you start your career? So why don't we go with you first? Yeah, sure. So. I grew up in India. My dad was in the Indian Navy, so moved around a fair bit almost every two years, uh, but spent a lot of my childhood in a city called Dehradun, which is central India, and then moved on to the cities by the, the seaside. So spent a couple of years down in South India in a city called Cochin, came back up to Mumbai, and then was fortunate enough to spend a few years in Goa before my dad finally went and found a job in Delhi. Uh, and that's where I did my university and then joined a business, which at the time was called Arthur Anderson, and then subsequently changed to Anderson and moved to Mumbai with them. Only did three years and then uh, moved to the UK in 2002. And it's quite funny because when I landed in the UK, I'd found myself a master's. I'd done my first degree in economics and was very keen to pursue a career in economics. And I'd always say to Nidhi, my first love is economics, you're my second love. So I came here and found a master's degree in economics and, and left India to come and pursue that. Landed in Heathrow at about six o'clock in the evening, got put on a bus and taken straight to Cardiff in September and didn't get out of Wales for the next four months. So my first experience of the UK was winter in Wales. And every day I questioned my decision as to... I'm amazed you stayed. I know what Wales is like in the winter. <laughs> I'm amazed I stayed. And Nidhi, how about you? And how did you meet as well? Sure. Very similar backgrounds, Doug. So my dad was in the Indian Army and I don't think I've been in a school growing up more than a couple of years, you know, because we were constantly moving. Um, because my dad was in the Army, we spent a lot of time predominantly north and east of India. So that's where I grew up mostly. We both originally come from Punjab. So I was sort of, you know, more based around that area. And um, I then went on to do my graduation and post-graduation in a city called Pune, which is very close to Mumbai, also known as the Oxford of the East. I proudly say to people, it's got something like a zillion universities. I think there were like 23 or 30 universities at the time I studied there. 
but it was far from home because family was up north and i still remember craving good food i used to complain of the kind of food we would get in the hostel and you know go out looking for good food but pune is a very foodie it's a student city and it's a very foodie city so you know there were lots of opportunities to indulge in a lot of good things um i did my bachelor of engineering not by choice i wanted to be a medical student i think you'll be horrified as you start finding where i wanted to be and where i've landed i knew i didn't want to be a mechanical engineer so i was trying to find a way out of that and you know doing an mba and i specialized in marketing and finance and as soon as i finished that we got married we met through his brother that's the connection because he and i were studying together his brother and i yeah and she she and my brother are really good friends so i say to him you sorted your life out you screwed mine so <laughs> <laughs> so yes i i followed sahil and i was here in 2005 I see. And then what drew you to the world of cooking and has it always been sort of part of your identity? I think um Sahil has definitely cooked more than me in the early years of our marriage. That has significantly changed, I can tell you now. But when I got to the UK in 2005, I think he could do a fair bit of cooking, but <laughs> I wanted more than just a dal, let's put it this way. <laughs> uh, and he was really good with this one dal recipe and I think we just started calling back home and you know cooking and trying a lot of things at home and I think one thing I remember very distinctly and and I've always said to people even though we were both in PwC really busy lives we only come back home in the evening we would still put in effort in putting together a simple home cooked meal you know we would do things from scratch so I think um that then 5 years on you know i left pwc we had kids and you know i took time out we've got no family here so we collectively took the decision you know i stepped back and that's when we had the idea because all these years we were sort of you know connecting back with family cooking so much and trialing all these things at home we really wanted to expand that and you know make it bigger so we came up with the idea of a cook school which i always say sahil was on the outside on the periphery but he was as much a part of Mary Rasoi that's the name of my cookery school that I've been running for the last 11 years and while I was delivering the classes and you're know, engaging with people and cooking and he and I were always ideating you know what can we do how can we draw in people started really small from our galley kitchen uh, in those days you know from our house and rallied a local neighborhood got people to sign on to a 6 week course and I guess just started going deeper and deeper down the world of food And let's turn to Cookaway, uh, your business. I wonder if we can start by introducing it. What's the sort of value proposition? I think the value proposition is really very simple, Doug. It's about the joy of cooking. And I think in this world today, if you see which way food has pivoted generally, there's a lot of talk about convenience. There's a lot of talk about get your dinner solved in 10 minutes, get your groceries in five minutes. and there is this sense that food is something you should be able to access very quickly whereas nidhi and i come from a place where we've grown up with our entire families living their lives around the cooking process and discussing what's going to be cooked and what's going to be fed and that's how i saw my you know sort of grandparents grow up and and that's how i spent my summer holidays with them with 20 other cousins and every all the discussions being about food and the whole joy of cooking and producing something which is then lovingly fed to your friends and family is something that we wanted to bring to life through the cookaway so we are actually zigging while the rest of the world is zagging uh, while the rest of the world is saying go fast get it quick we are saying 
but he slowed down in the fast lane. <laughs> there are some really good benefits and there's some really joyful experiences to be gained out of just slowing down and immersing yourself in the process of cooking. And that's what the cookaway is all about. We use a recipe box format, which means we send ingredients in a box, but that is where the similarity between us and anybody else in this market ends because our product is all about letting you slow down and immerse yourself in cooking something quite delicious and quite new and hopefully quite experiential. As you mentioned the, the market, because it is, it does feel, and I don't know if it's in the last probably five years, the recipe box market has ballooned. And, you know, you've seen lots of newcomers coming to the market. Where do you kind of draw your line? What are the key differentiators for you, be it about brand or, as you say, slowing the process down? What do you want to try and communicate to your customers? I think um, last two years have been <laughs> pretty crazy. I don't think we walked into this business, launching this business, knowing what's, you know, within three months of trading as a business, lockdown was upon us. And you started in 2019, yeah. We started in December 2019. That's right. And I think it was very clear to Sahil, you know, we wanted to expand on my cookery school. We saw the love and the passion and, you know, the sort of engagement we saw from people cooking and coming to learn through my cookery classes. We wanted to share that same passion and sharing those recipes, but just done in a box. So we were different from day one. We didn't want to, you know, put our consumers on a subscription format to begin with because, you know, this was to be done for enjoyment, for connecting with a cuisine, with a culture, and, um, you know, just helping you cook from scratch and taking the time out to enjoy that process. So it was convenience for people, but, you know, also we heard over the years collecting ingredients and sourcing ingredients is a pain point. There's a lot of wastage. I've known friends and so many people through my classes, again, who've said we have a drawer full of, you know, sort of larder ingredients, which we don't go back and not just Indian, you know, any other cuisines you're embracing. I think in terms of those are absolutely valid points from a consumer proposition, Doug. And I think the other sort of key point is we don't expect this to be a high frequency product. This is a high penetration product, which means we're not asking our consumers to replace their Tesco grocery shop and buy our boxes and cook from them three times a week. We are saying only access a product when you're feeling the love for food and the love for cooking. So this is your Sunday roast replacement and we are happy if you do it 10 to 12 times a year. Our commercial model holds up if you do it 10 to 12 times a year. We don't need you to do it 52 times or you know hundreds of times a year. That's interesting. It's an, that's a key differentiation from you know some of the sort of faster food type recipe boxes. Do you have in your mind a sort of ideal customer? What does your ideal customer look like? So our ideal customer is typically somebody who's a cooking enthusiast or a cooking hobbyist. And you know, as I describe them, people who are who fall into that category will immediately identify themselves with those traits because these are people who attend food festivals. They are searching the web for new inspiration and new recipes. They follow chefs. They watch TV cooking shows, and they are constantly looking to expand their cooking repertoire and their recipe repertoire. And there is a pain point there, which we term as the cookbook challenge, which is. While the rest of the publishing industry is in decline, cookbooks continue to be published. I think last year there were 24 million cookbooks published and you pay 35 quid for a nice hardback cookbook. You cook from it three times and then it sits on a shelf for the next 10 years and you never cook from it again. And that is because there is a pain point there, which is I want to cook something different. I'm inspired to try something different. 
but it's really hard to put together two or three recipes to make a menu, then to do the maths to say, I'm going to need six tablespoons of sesame seeds across the three recipes I want to cook, and then to go and procure those things from three or four different specialist supermarkets. Whereas what we provide is we take out all of the faff and at the click of a button, a box appears at your doorstep. It's got all specialist, high quality, premium ingredients. And you can just start the cooking process and create an amazing Japanese meal or a Malaysian meal or a Greek meal. So that's the audience we are talking to. That's our bullseye audience. And well, you were kind enough to share with me the Greek version, which was was totally delicious. And I would urge anyone who's listening to um, go to your website at cookaway.com. Doug, sorry, I'd like to just a small point. You know, when we say we pour a lot of love and passion and we take that pain, what really sets us apart is also the amount of time we spend in product development, working closely with our chefs. And there is nobody out there who will tell you to pair the right cooking oil for the right cuisine. And we've gone to that extent and we are telling you, you can't cook with olive oil when you're cooking an Indian meal. Mm. You know, it's a complete no-no. And that's again happened, you know, through, you get that education through cookery schools, you know, maybe attending supper clubs where you become a bit more knowledgeable. So we are there to handhold the customer, you know, through the entire journey. And that really sets us apart. So let's carry on. Let's sort of elaborate on the product development because you have a lot of recipes. I think it's 180 recipes of eight different cuisines. You can see them all on your website. And I know that you collaborate with a number of chefs. What's the sort of starting point to product development and new meal development as well? I think the starting point is very simple. We're going to hold hands and just take a really deep dive. <laughs> and the chefs, you know, we're we are quite fortunate. You know, all the chefs who sort of, you know, come along this journey with us, they're really passionate about their own cuisines and have spent, you know, significant amount of time just sort of looking into suppliers, ingredients. And it's not a simple case of, you know, chef coming on board and saying, here you go. I think we should do these six Malaysian or six Greek or six Italian recipes. We really think hard, you know, in terms of, you know, what's out in the market, you know, what will genuinely represent if you had to wrap your hands around Greek cuisine and get a really good idea of, you know, what are the basics, you know, what are the elementary sort of dishes, signature dishes, iconic ones. We go through the entire portfolio and that's how the menu curation process happens with a chef. I think it's also, um, it's a very interesting intersection because chefs are essentially creators and you know, they come to us with their creative hat on and their recipes generally run into 20 steps or 15 steps, especially if it's more complex dishes. And we have the ability to, one, curate what we think is representative of what we want to put out there and, and will uphold the brand values and the product values that we have. But equally, we have a very well-defined structure using which we can take that creative process and box it up in a way that it's a bulletproof product. So when you get it and you're reading the six steps and you're following the recipe cards, there's a lot of elbow room we are giving you to go and create it yourself. But we are able to do that because we bulletproof the product by following the structured process that we have in NPD. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's a product-led business, but I suppose brand identity is also important. With that in mind, do you have brands that you look up to and, and sort of want to emulate, not necessarily in your category? It's a very interesting question, Doug, because uh, we've spent the last six months working with a very prominent brand partner, uh, a branding agency that has created some of the most loved food brands in the UK. And uh, when we initially went to them and we said, we would like you to work with us because the brand identity is going to be critical in this game, their response to us was, recipe box, we wouldn't touch you with a barge pole. 
and we said, uh, you know, come and look under the bonnet. We are nice people. Come talk to us before you make those conclusions. And by the way, it's the same conclusion that investors make and sometimes the same conclusions that consumers make, which is why we want to make sure that our brand identity is really distinctive. And the more they look, the more they got excited to the extent that they've taken a risk position in our business now. And with them, I think we've really clarified what our brand positioning and proposition is. And to give you an example, if you look at the jewelry market as an example, then you've got your high street retail jewelry, MS, Next, and the others. Then you may have your high end, which is Tiffany's, Gucci, and others. And then in the middle, at a premium level, sits Pandora and Swarovski. And we are kind of there. That's how we are trying to build this brand, which is it's not going to cost you a leg and an arm to get a box out, but it's not a commoditized product. It's a very well curated, high quality premium product with a massive trust and seal of approval behind it. What I love about sort of new markets, if I can call it a new market, I could probably call it a new category, is the speed at which you get product differentiation and brand differentiation that you've identified. Looking at your website, feeling your product, you can really feel that identity. There used to be the brand is everything. Now it is everything is the brand. In other words, everything you touch, everything you feel, every way you interact with, say, your website is just so important and you can control that. I want to change tack to the capital raising because I know that you're experiencing an awful lot of growth at the moment. I think you know, you've been quite clear that you, know, you don't want to move into the sort of commoditized end of the market. So I would imagine there's a sort of balancing act. On the capital raising, what doors have you knocked on thus far? <laughs> Many doors is the short answer. But <laughs> look, we've done three rounds of investment. Uh, the first two rounds were friends and family, uh, some sort of angels in our network in very small investment rounds. The third round was a slightly sizable round that's allowed us to kick off some of the initiatives that we are working on at the moment. And we're currently doing a bridge round leading up to our Series A round. What we found, Doug, is we found it really hard to explain to investors why we are different and how we are going to win and why the underlying economics and the financial construct of this business is completely different from a recipe box company because they just don't give us the opportunity to even sit across the table and explain it to them. We get boxed and we get thrown into this well, which is a recipe box well, and we have to crawl out of that before anybody even starts to listen to us. So Hopefully, the brand work we do and the way we present ourselves will start to break some of those issues for us and distance us from what is seen as a traditional recipe box investment opportunity. But those that have listened to us and investors that, uh, and I usually say to investors, please go and try my product before you even talk to me, because the product says everything that I'm going to say to you, and I think you should experience it. And those that touch the product that understand what we're trying to do, our conversion rate is very high and they've been able to provide very patient capital. We've got an amazing, amazing group of investors who rally behind what we are trying to do and they understand good things take time. They understand the baby takes time to go from a crawl to a walk to a jog to a run. It doesn't happen overnight. And it's a trade-off between fast and doing things properly. And we are constantly playing that balancing game. So we're still in the early stages of, of trying to source you know, proper capital and capitalize the business to do some of the things we're doing at scale, but we've had some success so far. I think uh, the timing of everything seems really exciting because we've spent the last two years you know, expanding our product range. 
getting a really good product market fit. And you know, now we are with the brand work that's going to happen. We are absolutely ready to go for the next phase for the business, which we're really excited about. Um, how would you allocate the capital? You said you've already raised some meaningful capital. Where does it go? Does it go into the marketing budget? Does it go into more product development? Will that eight cuisine go to 10 cuisine to 12 cuisines? Does it go into managing the operations? I would imagine having you know opened the boxes, there's quite a lot of logistical problems that one needs to solve. Where does the equilibrium of the business lie at the moment? You know, where we've got to, Doug, today is we started with solving this problem, which is if we can't get a box out to you at scale with all the different components that need to go into the box with a near zero error rate and a just-in-time procurement model so we control the wastage, then there is no point in even trying to scale the business. So everything we've done so far has been about developing amazing products and developing ops capability and our own proprietary tech to allow us to deliver that box to you at scale. And we've come a long way with that because the nature of our business and what we put out there as a consumer proposition is is very consumer-centric. It's not telling you to consume our product in a way that it makes it easier for us to send you the product. It's telling you to consume the product as you would find it useful given your lifestyle, which means you can choose any recipe on our site. There is no subscription. You can add sides. You can add desserts. And your order becomes a bespoke order. So every order is a unique order. And then I have to receive that and solve that problem internally to be able to drive efficiencies through the business. And that's a hard problem to solve, yeah. Really hard problem to solve. And that's where tech has done an amazing job because we built some amazing proprietary tech that allows us to solve that problem in a way that today we can pick up any average Joe from the road and say, you know nothing about the business. I'll give you 10 minutes induction and you'll be able to pack a box and send it to Doug in a way that he will get that box generally error free. Mm. So we've got the business to that point where there is product market fit, as Nidhi said. We've got some amazing chefs on board. We're getting profiled by press and media who would otherwise not profile recipe boxes. Ops and supply chain is very strong. We've gone directly to major suppliers. We haven't gone to middlemen. Uh, we do a lot of the repacking ourselves and we found repackers. So all of that is in place, which means the final piece of the puzzle is getting the brand out there and starting to market this brand to the right audiences using the right channel mix in a way that we are not operating a leaky bucket because you can burn a lot of cash in marketing trying to acquire customers. And that is where all of our efforts are pointing today, which is where does that customer reside? And what is the right channel to go and talk to them? And how do you talk to them so you can get efficient acquisition? Yeah, I suppose that it's a very difficult strategic plan to put in place, isn't it? Uh, the marketing strategy across the UK. Going back to that question on value proposition, presumably technology is absolutely central to the value proposition. And that itself holds value when thinking about valuing the business as a whole. I wonder what those valuation discussions have been around? I mean, how have the investors been thinking about the valuation of your business? You don't necessarily need to go into numbers, but you know, do they look at the total addressable market and work back? Do they look at assets? What sort of value tools, maybe leaning on your experience from PwC, would you use to value a business like yours? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one, as you say, Doug, because in some ways we are operating in uncharted territory here. You know, there are some businesses that have exited in this space, but we are nothing like those businesses. Our economics are not like those businesses. So using those EBITDA or you know turnover sort of multiples can be misleading. 
At the same time, there is some clarity on the opportunity in terms of what's the addressable market, what's the size of that. If you acquired a certain percentage of that market, what could the business look like in three to five years time? And the valuation can be attached to that to some degree. But there is this unknown potential in terms of there are businesses that are content businesses that pivot to commerce. There are businesses that are commerce businesses that find or maybe not find a content opportunity. We happen to be that business which has a huge content opportunity and has a huge commerce opportunity. And one will feed the other. And if you see some of our work that we're doing on the content side of things, if you didn't know that a recipe box existed tangibly, this could be a business in its own right as a content business. So I think it's taking all of those things into consideration and really kicking the tires on the underlying unit economics and believing in the fact that this business can get to a certain size and scale in this market before we start to explore new markets. That is what gets us to some sort of a valuation that we are all comfortable with and that can be justified in some ways. Looking to the future then, and let's take our crystal balls out and look maybe sort of five years down the road, where would you like to see the business in five years? Where do you see the scaling opportunities? And I suppose I'm mindful of the fact that it is product-led. This isn't, as we've said, this isn't a commoditized play. So that presumably acts as a natural constraint. Yeah, so it's. Um, I'll give you some top-line numbers just so you can contextualize the scale opportunity a bit. So we don't expect to penetrate very deep in one market because our audience is, like I said, it's a large audience, but it's a niche audience. It's not a mass market product. So in year five from now, we expect this business to be circa 50 million pound top line in the UK, which gives us roughly about five to 6% penetration in our uh, addressable market group. And then we see opportunity in other new markets where there are similar audience groups but they are highly underserviced because these kind of models don't exist. And that's where the way we've built the business as a black box, which means I can deploy my model in any new market, plug-in supply chain distribution marketing, and off it goes with the tech that we've built, allow us to hopefully access some new markets when we're approaching that scale in the UK. So this is certainly a business where we won't be fighting the dogfight to get the last you know, half a percent from the next competitor but it'll be hopefully one where you've got the brand that upholds its values and it's a retention business, not a constant acquisition business. And therefore, your journey to that 50 million needs a burst of acquisition, but then it drives retention on the back of the product and the value that we provide. And you don't have a leaky bucket that you have to constantly try and fill. So I think you're going to like this next question because I think it, it speaks to economics. I wonder the sort of cyclicality of the business. Is this recession-proof? Or how would you expect the business to perform if there's a slowdown? This is a slightly leading question, because I wonder if Cookaway falls into that little luxury category. You know, instead of going out for dinner, you can order in significantly less expensive, but you still get that kind of small treaty feeling. I wonder if, if you've done any analysis on its economic sensitivity. I'm sure you have. <laughs> I'll give you a slightly subjective answer. I think Nidhi's probably got something to add to this as well. But I think certainly it's a business that is less affected by cyclicality and, and recessionary times because there are two significant shifts that have happened, as you're very well aware of. The sort of home 
focus on the home is very big having come out of the lockdown and home entertaining and doing things as at home and seeing your home as a place of relaxation and entertainment though there's been a massive attitude shift there and i think we fit into that very clearly especially with our target audience that's a slightly more affluent audience and that values premium quality products and premium quality experiences and you're you're right in that as things become more expensive and as it becomes more of a logistical challenge to go into a cookery school you know in london 2 hours away from you spend half a day there and then come back you know our model is very easily accessible and hopefully satisfies your motivations to cook and try something new so i think certainly there is a lot of that to play into this and then it, you know i was recently listening to a podcast with uh, the delivery founder will shu and in the last 10 minutes he's asked a question which is your space has become very commoditized it's very competitive where do you think the future of online food is going and who do you think is going to win and what he starts to describe in the next 3 or 4 minutes is essentially our business and his point is anybody who can package an experience and deliver it to a customer's doorstep in the sense that it's a genuine authentic experience that allows the customer to replicate why they go to a restaurant why they go and talk to the owner of the restaurant the stories that they hear and how they connect with food he thinks that's his view he thinks that's the future of online food and that is where this industry is going so hopefully that gives us some hope in terms of the opportunity Sorry Nitin did you have something to add to that No I was just going to say I think there have been a lot of reports people we know this whole industry sort of mushroomed over lockdown you know from restaurants to chefs and everybody did a box and it's taken a while for that noise to distill but I think one thing is very clear going forward is that the at home dining experience an average customer really wants to make more of that at home So recipe boxes are here to stay you know at home dining experiences are not going anywhere you know people are only upping their game and i think when you're talking to a real foodie you may want to finish things off at home but a real foodie is only excited by rolling up their sleeves and getting into proper cooking you know that's what excites them so i think that is what we are excited about the future of the cookaway and my final question which i ask to everyone is um what advice would you give to our younger listeners who are perhaps thinking about pursuing an entrepreneurial idea what sort of skills do they need to equip themselves with or perhaps it's a mindset that they need to get into for them to be successful nidhi why don't you go first i think we need a whole new podcast on that <laughs> we should i keep saying to sahil maybe we should document our learnings and our mistakes and i think all i can say dag i've been a mini entrepreneur in my own right running my own cook school but you know i've always had sahil's support quite lucky that way i don't think anything can prepare you in this world no education no degree can prepare you for running a business however big or small it is but i think if i had to leave somebody with some advices tap into the entrepreneurial community early on you know rely on other people so make your connections your networks and i think it's highly valuable there's a lot to learn from there and what you don't have the budgets for early on in the business still put sort of functions in place and things in place but maybe outsource the experience when you're not ready to hire it i think those are the two words of wisdom i think from my point of view dug it's really important to be in the driving seat as an entrepreneur and follow your instinct i think there's a lot to be said about your gut instinct and ignore it at your own peril i think it's really important to recognize the elephant in the room the problem in the room and spend the time 
how much ever time it takes to find the right structural solution rather than band-aid fixes. The band-aid fixes look very attractive. You know, people come and promise you that there are some quick wins, low-hanging fruit, very common terminology, and I run very far away from those. And, you know, my sort of standard default is what is the root cause? What is causing this problem? Let's not treat the symptom, let's treat the problem, even if it pushes me back and I have to shrink before I grow. So I think it's it's really important to be in control of those decisions because there is just so much noise, so much information, you can get very consumed in a very chaotic world very quickly. That's sage advice. Nidian Sahal, thank you for joining me. Thank, thank you, you, Doug. Thank you, Doug. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guests this week, Sahil and Nidhi Verma. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe, and let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.